It's time now for Illinois Innovators, spotlighting the leaders in research, technology, and entrepreneurship from the engineering at Illinois community. Welcome to another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Today, we're coming to you from the 5th Healthcare Engineering Systems Symposium hosted by the University of Illinois. We're going to have several guests of uh, speakers and other uh, dignitaries who are here at uh, the conference. And we're going to start with Darren D'Agostino. He's a professor at Kansas City University. Uh, an executive dean uh, for the College of Osteopathic Medicine and the vice president for health affairs. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you. Very nice to be here. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, education in this uh, um, area because you've had a couple of stops and obviously hired at Kansas City uh, University for your expertise here. So just talk about uh, you know, the vastly changing uh, landscape. Well, I think that's a great way to express it. It is vastly changing. Um, education right now is morphing into an application-based curriculum. Um, like it or not, knowledge is free. We can get it from anywhere. And the real question in healthcare right now is, how do we use it? How do we put it to task? How do we actually take care of patients? And we're doing that earlier and earlier. It used to be uh, you go to medical school to learn the knowledge, to learn the vocabulary. You go to residency to learn how to apply it. We're actually moving that into the medical school education and curriculum now. So there is you know, a lot of overlap then. Um, so just talk about how the approach of students. Obviously, uh, this is a, a, a kind of a new generation of students that are used to being taught this way? Has, has there been maybe more adjustment uh, on the faculty side as opposed to the student side? Well, the adjustment at the faculty level is dramatic. Um, it used to be many, many years ago, you'd go to class and sit and listen to the sage on the stage, uh, understanding the materials or attempting to understand the materials that were being presented to you. Now it's a little bit different. Now we have to be able to provide task-oriented education so students can actually walk out of the classroom with an understanding of how to apply that knowledge. Um, the, old, uh, the old message that we would send is see one, do one, teach one. Uh, and that was from many, many years ago. Well, the reality is, is seeing one, doing one, and teaching one doesn't work, and it doesn't work well. It also implies that you're going to be experimenting on patients. So if we want to be safe and provide the best health care possible, we need to practice in an environment that allows us to not hurt patients and learn from our mistakes. Well, here at the University of Illinois, uh, we opened this fall the Jump Simulation Center. And one of the great things uh, in, in your uh, situation is um, before you had to learn actually on uh, – on, on, pa on patients in surgery, uh, for instance, and now with this simulation, you're able to, to provide that without actually uh, before dealing with patients. Well, that's exactly it. Uh, what we are able to do now with various types of simulation is put students through an active learning environment so that they gain the skills necessary before they actually touch a patient. Um, by the time you get to a patient, you have to at least have an understanding of what's right and wrong, how to do and what not to do. Um, you don't necessarily have to be proficient, but you do have to know where the limits are. 
And until you're in a simulated, simulated environment or working with simulators to understand where those barriers and boundaries and the playing field exists, you might not know. So we're actually working uh, with uh, the Jump Center and with um, um, those innovators who are creating the simulations to make our students better. So uh, is the students coming to, to Illinois, or um, are you being able to, to do that from Kansas City? Yeah, in Kansas City, we're, um, we're actually building a, uh, a brand-new medical education tower. It's called the Center for Medical Ed- Education and Innovation. And essentially what we're doing is creating a new active learning environment that will marry simulation and um, knowledge gathering, active learning together. Um, This will be throughout the entire Kansas City University system, um, very similar to what the University of Illinois is attempting to do. Uh, What we are uh, very, very actively developing, however, is an active learning environment using dual processing and learning sciences to enhance the student experience. And this is where simulation comes in. So what will this ultimately mean for the patient? Because obviously, as we change education, the benefits for the customer and for the patient have to be great. Yeah, these technologies are actually driving uh, patient safety. Um, it's going to be very important for us to pay attention to the data that comes back and to understand the metrics when we're studying how uh, outcomes for patient student performance, uh, physician performance, and patient outcome uh, develop. I think one of the more important things to understand is that as we start to become more proficient with the use of the knowledge, patient safety improves, and that's really what this is about. This is all about population health and patient safety. Well, and you talked about the app environment. So as, as much as uh, educating students, educating the, the customer to the, the changing landscape of education, being able to diagnose uh, themselves from afar using various apps, I mean, this is really changing how um, we interact with, with physicians. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the technology in the last, uh, I'm not even going to say 10 years, in the last five years has, uh, has been on an exponential growth pattern. Um, even with the announcement of the new Apple uh, Watch taking uh, EKG readings, now, although that existed before looking for arrhythmias in certain populations of people, um, it's now ubiquitous. If you buy the watch, you can wear it, and you can always be monitoring. And that opens the door to a lot of patient education as well. So once again, the technology, the innovations, and the simulations are helping the patients become better patients. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to to expand a little bit on the collaboration that you have here with the University of Illinois, because it is significant, um, and talk about how it's benefiting both parties. Yeah, the uh, Kansas City University and the Healthcare Engineering System School here at the University of Illinois are working together uh, essentially to prove some of the concepts that we just talked about in education. Um, Some of these technologies will be implemented in uh, a classroom environment for our students in Kansas City. Um, And once we uh, analyze uh, how they impact and how they influence the educational experience as well as the retention of knowledge, and the application of knowledge, uh, we'll be able to apply that directly to the technology. Some of the things that are developing, the technological innovations and the development of new tools, are out there, and there's a really cool factor about them, right? I have to have this, and I have to play with this, and I have to use this. 
But what we really have to do is prove that it's making a difference in the educational environment. And this collaboration between the two schools, uh, in my mind, is, um, is an absolutely amazing way to, uh, to prove these concepts. And how will you evaluate its success? Well, we'll be looking at standard exam testing, uh, board scores in the future longitudinally. Uh, we're also going to be uh, looking at the application of the knowledge with our patients um, many of these tools will be used uh, right before or during uh, application or learning on clerkships. So in other words, students would be out there with patients, and we're going to look at how that's going to enhance the experience at the patient level as well. All right, Darren D'Agostino has been our guest. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, one of the main parts of this conference uh, are presentations by uh, projects which are funded through Jump Arches and uh, one of those is uh, by Sitlali Lopez-Ortiz, who's an assistant professor uh, at the University of Illinois in the Department of Kinesiology and Community Health. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. So your project, uh, Characterization of Muscle Activity in Isometric Force Efforts Using the uh, Haptic Robotic Interface, I'll just have you expand on that project. Sure. Uh, this project uh, was um, initiated uh, due to the need for accurate diagnosis of movement disorders in cerebral palsy. Uh, cerebral palsy is a condition in which there are anomalies in muscle activity. Sometimes there is excess muscle activity or hypertonicity, and sometimes there is very little muscle activity or hypotonicity. Uh, and in many cases, disorders of tone uh, and disorders of movement control appear combined in a single child. And so teasing apart the different components of the abnormal comp uh, uh, coordination of movements is very challenging in terms of its diagnosis and treatment. And so this, this project focuses on trying to characterize quantitatively uh, muscle activity to provide uh, a template for the characterization of abnormal uh, activity in cerebral palsy and aid in the medical, medical education and diagnosis overall of uh, cerebral palsy. So I, you had 10 adults, which you assume ha don't have uh, neural disorders, I think, uh, were your subject. Yes, so today we presented in a, an, uh, a result that is part of the global project, and in the, what we presented today is the analysis of the muscle activity in people that have typical motor control, and we had, uh, actually there were nine subjects at the okay. end, and, and we had them interact with a robot a, um, exerting isometric, that means static uh, movements, uh, force efforts, no movement, static force efforts against a robot that resists the pushes against it in 14 different directions and, um, and several repetitions. And while people were pushing against the robot, we were measuring the uh, surface um, electromyography. That means the activity, the electrical activity of the muscles that we can sense at the surface level. On the, of the skin. So uh, that uh, information is very important because um, what we could do was then characterize the activity of 16 different muscles through an analytical processing in groups of, m of maybe 
four or six uh, uh, independent control signals for the 16 muscles. Mm -hmm. So, um, and in this, in this characterization that we do where, where muscle groups that work together are, um, are, are identified, uh, we were able to actually not only, uh, we were able to come up with a, an analytical, an equation of the muscle activity as a function of time for these force efforts. Mm -hmm. So the significance of that is that up to today, it is uh, an open problem in motor control, uh, be it in engineering, robotic motor control, or human motor control, like in neurology. Um, it is and not understood how the brain uh, sets up s control signals for sets up control signals for the muscles, uh, and if you try to drive any human-like limb, well, you would need at least sixteen at least sixteen independent control knobs to activate those sixteen indiv individual muscles and know how to modulate that signal. Well, we've reduced the problem to maybe uh, to groups of muscles so that we can have only four, maybe six control signals and, and accurately reproduce the force production of a human-like limb. And so we, it has applications in robotics, and of course, it has the application of aiding in diagnosis because then you can do the same, repeat the same procedure in people that have normal control and then do the comparison analytically. Uh, and I thought it was interesting that you were uh, looking at muscles and how they react to one another as it relates to, to the, uh, you know, the signals that they're sending and receiving from, uh, from the brain. Well, the the muscles uh, activate uh, simultaneously, and the big question is, are there common signals coming to the brain for those muscles, or are there independent signals that at some point get combined and then get sent to the muscles? And from the results and the graphs that we've generated, what we see is that it, there is an incredibly high correlation of, on the signals that go across all muscles. Um, but the subtle differences <laughs> are exactly the detail of how precision in our own motor control happens. Um, so yes, muscles are, are usually activated in groups, but the groups may vary depending on the task and on the situation and on, uh, on the type of neurological disorder. So you mentioned uh, cerebral palsy. Uh, what, what are the other um, applications that you see from this research? So other applications very close to cerebral, cerebral palsy is stroke, um, because um, many of the cases of cerebral palsy can be thought of as infant, infant, uh, pediatric strokes. Um, other characterizations in principle could be uh, applied on um, Parkinson's disease or multiple sclerosis or um, um, 
other dystonias that are not that are primary dystonias, not in, in cerebral palsy. Dystonia is 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 a secondary condition to cerebral palsy, and there are dystonias that are primary that in that case. So in general, it could be applied in principle to any movement disorder that has some kind of neurological component. So uh, the uh, HCESC on campus, relatively new uh, center. How how talk about the impact that that and uh, center has had, and specifically the collaboration that you had and uh, with them, and how this is going to help your research in the future. The impact of this uh, initiative is, is is enormous and it's very positive. First of all, um, it uh, brings together people from multiple disciplines and provides a forum for that interaction to happen. And for research like the one I do, it, it, that is an absolute key component. I need to be able to interact with physicians at OSF and the Peoria Children's Hospital and UIC Comp, and then I need to have access to the brilliant I- students in engineering to aid with the uh, planning of the robotics uh, programming and uh, VR interfaces that I also manipulate. And then I need the students in kinesiology that have all the, the knowledge of how the human body actually works and it's put together and controls movement. And so for me, uh, this has been the, the, the place of richest collaboration on campus and, and the people that direct this initiative are very uh, dynamic and forward-looking and I'm really delighted to be part of it. It's been an honor, and it's been uh, a great experience. Satali Lopez-Ortiz, thank you for joining us on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Joining us now is Stephen Bopart. Uh, he's an Able Bliss professor of engineering uh, with appointments in both the departments of electrical and computer engineering and bioengineering. Uh, he's also the director for the Center of Optical Molecular Imaging and the head of the Biophotonics Imaging Laboratory here at the University of Illinois. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So you presented today on uh, development of a smartphone-based skin simulation model for medical education. And, and I, I have to admit, when, when people think of simulation, they're not nece- I wouldn't necessarily skin would, would come to mind. Just talk about uh, the differences there and, and how even simulation can work uh, in this realm. Sure, sure. So simulation, I think, can take on a lot of different meanings and, and interpretations. You know, you might be simulating that, that patient where... Uh, you're trying to emulate a lot of the functional parameters that are changing in that physiological system so so medical students or physicians can better learn how to treat that patient. When we talk about simulation, we might also simulate biomaterials and different properties and functions of, of living tissue. Uh, and then we might even simulate in a visual way uh, the appearance, say, of image data and, and, and look at functional or mathematical um, changes that might occur, so simulating these types of responses in the body. So my, this particular project that we've been interested in is really tackling that middle uh, definition of simulation where we're trying to, to emulate uh, both the biomechanical properties of skin and various skin pathologies, uh, but also their, their appearance, their coloration, and trying to do this in a very adaptable platform with smartphone technology. So are you taking actual measurements or whatever from, from patient's skin and be able to replicate that, or are you just taking, you know, uh, just 
Talk a little bit about that process, I guess. Sure, sure. Yeah, we're actually trying to take as much information as possible and and then assimilate that into this model, that a training model, an educational model that, that again, can be used for medical students or, or physicians in the area of dermatology. So much of dermatology has always, uh, in terms of the training and education of dermatology skills, has been image-based. So they'll show photographs of, of different skin lesions or rashes, <clears throat> or maybe the, the the learner will actually encounter a patient that has different physical findings that they want to understand and try to understand the underlying pathology through those types of experiences. But we want to try to develop a system that can be adaptable, portable, uh, and take into account, for instance, a photograph of a lesion or of a rash and, and store that on a smartphone. Now, that gives us the coloration and the visual appearance, but now we have to add the biomechanical or the topography of that. So that's where we've been developing different biomaterials that can emulate the, the mechanical properties of skin or the touch and feel of skin in those lesions. Now, we want to combine those two. So we develop different types of elastomers that have those properties, and then we overlay that over the image that's on your smartphone. Now, when you do that, a lot of these materials are not completely transparent. So they're a little bit translucent, and they distort the image that's on your smartphone. So now what we do is we, we developed an integrative uh, feedback algorithm. So you take a second smartphone, and you take a picture of what's coming through that elastomer. And of course, that's distorted. But now those two smartphones talk to one another. And the one that's taking the picture sends signals to the one that's showing the image to try to change what that image looks like. So ultimately, what we see is that we have a corrected image that's shining or illuminating through that polymer or that elastomer. And that, that way we can combine both the visual representation as well as the mechanical or tactile representation of that lesion. So where are you on uh, this research and how do you f see this uh, helping uh, education um, in this, this area? Sure, sure. We think we're just getting started. So uh, this is actually a seed project funded by the Jump Arches program, which has been wonderful to, to kick off this new idea. Uh, what the point we're at is looking at different types of elastomers and working on this algorithm that can do this type of feedback and image correction. What we want to do next, of course, is try to improve that image quality to start using that and, uh, in an educational setting to get feedback from, from medical students and physicians how the system works. Uh, but there's a lot of work even into the future. So we take our inspiration from cuttlefish. So cuttlefish, uh, which are kind of called the chameleons of the sea, uh, have this remarkable ability to change their coloration, their patterns of their skin, and even texturize the skin uh, for purposes of communication and camouflage. Well, they do this in a remarkable way, and so the next generation of this technology, we feel, can have a, an electrostatic polymer that can actually deform and create textures based on electrical signals that are driving it. So now we even have an adaptable biomaterial that can change its texture depending on the type of skin lesion and textures we want to, to, to show or to, to, to teach to these medical students. Another example of how we're turning to nature to see how animals and, and uh, other living species, uh, we, can, we can learn a lot from them that, that help tell us about ourselves and you can develop uh, these, prod these uh, products that really reflect that. 
Exactly. I think that we have a lot to learn from nature, and, and nature's had many years to kind of refine and adapt uh, and to develop these. And I think that uh, it's a very an interesting area to merge or understand the, the, the processes in nature and try to replicate those with the technology we have available. So we obviously mentioned the smartphone apps. Can you put into to words how, how that technology has just uh, completely really overhauling some of the evaluations and things uh, from the medical field. Sure, sure. I'm a, a physician in addition to a biomedical engineer, and I just see that the smartphone technology is permeating all of medicine. It's, it's now our, our portable computer, our database, our, our resource for images, for information, for communication. And, and that coupled with uh, smart technologies for wearable uh, health, uh, applications is going to be uh, seen increasingly more and more. And that's because what's, what's remarkable about this, I call it the Fitbit generation, is that our ability then to, to be interested in our own physiological or medical parameters. And I think society is taking on more of a, their own responsibility of monitoring their health. And, and if we provide tools and technologies that, that can help with that, we'll get much more information about not only that individual's health, but also the population's health. And this is information that I think will ultimately lead to better individual and population-based health care. Yeah, it's true. You talk about uh, being able to communicate with one another to make generalization. It's, uh, it's a lot easier than, and probably much more accurate than doing surveys and, and things like that or asking for information from each physician. Exactly. And, and I think the, the technologies that have uh, developed in terms of the, the sensors to measure movement, to measure uh, mood, uh, to be able to sense uh, physiological parameters like body temperature, blood pressure, even the, the salinity of your sweat, uh, or other types of biomolecules. I think this information, again, is going to be uh, incredibly useful. I, I think the challenge for us is how do we integrate all that information into uh, useful knowledge? Uh, so much of this technology on the, you know, the individual basis is, is, is really not as accurate as some of the more advanced and sophisticated uh, medical technologies, but that still provides valuable information about trends and about uh, population changes that we can take advantage of. Well, Stephen Bopart, uh, keep us informed. Uh, we look forward to hearing the results uh, of this uh, project. Wonderful. Thank you very much for the opportunity. We'll do. Joining us now is Scott Barrows. He's the Director of Medical Visualization at Jump Simulation Peoria and OSF Healthcare. Scott, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to give you a chance to talk about your uh, presentation today on uh, heart failure and behavior change, a patient-provider uh, interactive clinical education app for mobile devices. Um, this seems like a, a, a huge uh, benefit to the medical community, and I'll uh, have you talk a little, a little bit about it. Well, I, really, um, heart failure is a result of a lot of uh, its age, its lifestyle, its heredity, but it is a tremendous um, cost in life and also an expense to the medical community. A lot of, the, a lot of this cost could be um, alleviated as well as life preserved and a quality of life if patients had a better understanding of the disease and did something about it, followed uh, their, be compliant with their medications, with lifestyle, um, and that includes family members. Right now, if you look at a lot of the information, there are probably 10 to 12 uh, mobile apps out there, most of them by drug companies, and there's a, a focus. Some of them are better than others. 
And to be honest, mobile apps often fail. Um, the reason being there's a interest at the beginning, then it just trickles down at the end and is no, no longer used. What we really are integrating that hasn't been done before is behavior change um, therapy, which is uh, we're using the trans-theoretical behavior change approach by Prochaska at the University of Rhode Island that's been around for a while. It does work. It's not like overwhelmingly successful, but it works. And that along with um, contact, making it personal, making it uh, giving the patient their data or the family their data and giving them the tools to understand what is going on and in the simplest terms and in very user-friendly terms. This won't, you know, not everybody likes mobile apps or even has a mobile phone, um, but that's changing. The other area of great interest, uh, I see this as the beginning of a whole line of behavior change apps in healthcare, uh, obesity, diabetes, cancer, other forms of heart disease. Um, so much of it is, is behavior and bad habits and this starts with children. Um, the levels of childhood obesity are off the charts and people try some things, but really it, it takes a team of many people and many different approaches. And that one approach isn't going to do it. So it's about getting together with a program and having a lot of buy-in from, from not only the patient, but uh, the people important to the patient. It, it is, and, and in, in trans-theoretical, the first phase of it is going to be uh, rejection or non, you know, non, no interest, um, and that's about a six-month average. So if you can keep a patient and their family on board for about six months, you've got a good chance of kind of moving them to the next phase, and it takes a long time. Um, we also, I'm uh, at OSF Healthcare in Peoria, and some of the recent studies that just came out um, from OSF Cardiology um, on heart failure is there is a dramatic um, improvement if a patient is contacted just two days after discharge for heart failure, and that it, it continues to improve if there is if they come back to the clinic within a week. It might not seem like a lot, even if they're not having symptoms. So integration is really important, um, and that contact. Uh, America's healthcare, unfortunately, a lot of times, you know, a patient is discharged from the hospital, given a few things, here, read this over, you know, take your meds, goodbye. Um, that has to change, it already has. So give us an idea of the things that you're monitoring for the patient. Well, we are not doing the actual monitoring. However, we will include um, blood pressure is very important. The swelling of ankles um, is very important. These are our red flags. Um, there's uh, suggested, and this depends on the patient, what is their exercise regimen? Is it going to be just walking down the street a couple of blocks or a couple of houses or... Um, and then how, what happens? To what, how's the patient feel from that? A lot of it is interactive, is their response. The lab data is something we're interested in including, and that can be motivational. If they see their lipids drop, if, for instance, if um, 
they have heart disease based on coronary arteries that are clogged, so, so to speak. Um, there are lipids that can be monitored and followed, and that's something we would like to add in phase two, but that also is a different, it, it has a lot of challenges because of confidentiality data. Um, it can be overcome, but it is expensive. So we're, we're talking about simple uh, record your activity, uh, that type of information? Th that's part of it. Uh, a lot of it is, is, is education and um, just making a patient aware that, you know, if they go out and eat a bag of salty chips, uh, we're going to show them what happens um, in the average patient with, when sodium levels go way up. Um, it could mean their heart's going to stretch out and eventually be um, not as effective. It's going to show their, their vessels shrink. We're, we're going to use a visual approach as well as interactive. Um, and I, I also see down the road uh, gamification, possibly using augmented reality. It, it is The information is pretty easy. It's, it's been established. The problem is people are not reading it, most people. Um, it's not making an impact. We're not doing, I'm talking about healthcare, is not doing a good job of delivering a lot of this information. Um, some places do it much better than others, but um, especially in the Midwest, we've got a lot of challenges we need to address that relate. So I'm going to have you talk about some of the statistics that you had here. Um, you know, it says, you know, after the initial diagnosis of heart failure, the five-year mortality rate right now is at 50%. The one-year mortality after an admission primarily for heart failure is 30% and worsens after each hospitalization. How was it, would this program really help the uh, improve those statistics? Um, as I mentioned, with the OSF cardiology study, it is integration, it is communication, um, and that is letting the uh, patient tell what are, you know, if the, if the red flags that maybe they were told about didn't register, it's, it's making it um, pretty obvious by a phone call, by a follow-up in the clinic. That's pretty, the data's pretty dramatic. Um, I don't have the numbers right in front of me. This just came out maybe a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but Dr. Barry Clumsen, who is part of our study, he's head of the heart failure uh, research program at OSF and also head of heart failure, uh, the heart failure clinic at OSF Cardiology. So um, it is really, our part of it is about integration. It's going to be, it's all the things that, are outside of the lab or outside of, um, you know, what is the, the, the personal data. But it, a lot of it hasn't been done. This is um, kind of a newer area. Well, we look forward to following the, the research and the study and, and, uh, and um, this app because I think that the, that's kind of seems like the direction, especially for healthcare, um, that is, apps in the future are going to play a, a big role in uh, monitoring and, and in all aspects of healthcare. Well, and I will say this just came out Friday. Uh, Apple Watch, um, it's uh, the wearable Apple Watch 4.0 that is being released. The biosensor now will pick up and report a patient's EKG, 
um, atrial fibrillation, if that's occurring, and also if a patient is having trouble walking with falls. It's going to monitor those, and that's going to be a game changer because there are, you can do a lot of these at home, but you have to attach it to a PC and then, you know, be connected to the internet. To have this uh, on a patient's wrist, and it's going to be immediate. It will, we could link it directly to the heart doctor's office. Um, it's, it's really a big uh, part of this, plus in the behavior change side, um, having that feedback, uh, it's only going to help things better. So I'm, it, it's in my mind, wearable technology and biosensors are, it, it is something we've been wanting, um, and now it's here. Scott Barrows, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Joining us now is Judy Rowan. She is the first permanent associate dean for academic affairs for the Carl Illinois College of Medicine. And so she uh, is in charge of developing the curriculum for uh, the uh, medical school, which uh, went online uh, in July. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So uh, there's been a lot written about what makes this a school unique, the fact that it's an engineering-based college of medicine. Can you expand on that and how that affects the curriculum? So it is throughout our curriculum. We have truly integrated engineering rather than just paying it lip service or speckling it on top of a medical curriculum. So all of our students are engaged in this curriculum, not just a subset. And it's infused throughout. For example, every single one of our courses has three course directors. We have a clinician, a basic scientist, and an engineer building each course from day one. So that engineering principles are woven throughout what they're learning. Um, just as a very, very simple example, one of their very first cases that they discussed since we have a case-based, problem-based learning curriculum, one of their very first cases was a patient who had chest pain. So that man obviously needed an EKG. They didn't just learn how to read an EKG. They learned how the machine works, how the vectors are created, what can go wrong with the sensors, et cetera. When they talked about blood pressure, they talked about principles of fluid dynamics. They've learned all sorts about turbulent flow versus laminar flow. So it's, it's throughout, but they're still learning everything you need to learn in medical school to go on to be a good physician. So we have them. They've already um, been tested. They started July 2nd. They've already had a test to make sure their clinical skills are good, and they're already seeing patients every week. Wow. So what? talk about the makeup of this first class because obviously, as you said, this merges the two. Do you find that more of them came from the, uh, the medical side versus the engineering side, or, or just what's the composition of the class? Right. So we were very careful when when we decided what was going to be required for admissions, we didn't want to box people in because we know that a lot of people gain competencies from workplace-based activities, not just school. So they had to demonstrate competencies, which included quantitative competencies. They also had to have the standard med school prerequisites in one way or another. So as an example, we had a person who's transcript from college did not have a lot of data science activity. 
But that person went on to work for one of the major developers of electronic medical records in the country. So he clearly has a large understanding of that field from what he was doing at work. So our, our makeup, we're very, very happy. We have 32 students, and there are 16 men, 16 women, which when you're looking for people from STEM fields is already an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Three of them come to us with PhDs. Eight of them already have masters. I believe about 22 of them, their undergraduate degree was in an engineering field. But it's all kinds of engineers. It's not all bioengineering. There's chemical engineering, nuclear ener- engineering, mechanical engineering. So we really think that kind of diversity is really going to help. We see our students as, a, as an incubator and catalyst for development. All of them have to complete capstone requirements, and they'll be doing that in teams. And so if you get students who have these different experiences and skills, combining them with the wealth of knowledge and material right here on campus and in the research park, it's, it's just going to be amazing. So I want you to expand on that because the uh, I believe they each have to come up with seven ideas and then they lead into the capstone project, and I'll let you explain how that works. Yeah. So um, in the second phase of their curriculum, they're on coursework that are called clerkships. So there is a clerkship for internal medicine, one for surgery, et cetera. On each of these clerkships, they are going to be in a course called the IDEA course and engineering rounds. So every Friday afternoon, they will leave their clinical experience to work on developing projects. Each clerkship, um, anyone who's worked in medicine at all knows that it takes about two days of working in a field to recognize that things are not as efficient or as effective as they could be. So we're having these people with their fresh eyes come into these settings, and normally medical students are told, Um, you are to be seen but not heard. And we are telling our medical students, no, please speak up. And when something doesn't make sense and you think it could be done better, speak up. So find a problem and propose a solution. So from each of those clerkships, they're supposed to find a problem and propose how they would go about solving that problem. And they'll be given the tools to do that through their coursework before that phase and during that idea and engineering rounds course. Then in their final year, they're to choose one of the problems or another problem they may have encountered some other way through their experiences and form a team, tackle it, and produce a result. So we're gonna, we have 32 students. That implies we will have about 16 projects coming out They also must complete a data science project, so taking a large data set and asking questions that can be answered through careful analysis. So um, it's going to be exciting. So today's uh, symposium is uh, all to do about simulation, and obviously simulation plays a big part in the experience of these students. Can you talk about uh, how they've been integrated into the simulation center? And it sounds like That's been a heavy dose of what they've done so far. Yes. um, The the students love the Sim Center. We all love the Sim Center. Um, So they're brand-new medical students. They don't have that much experience in the medical realm. So a lot of what they're doing is very, very basic, but simulation just makes it so much more valuable. I mean, the beauty of simulation is that you can do it over and over until you get it right. 
and you're not harming anyone and your decisions do not have lasting consequences. The other thing is that it can be videotaped and reviewed so you know how you did. So they started in July and it is currently mid-September and they're in there all the time. So some examples, we have used human simulation extensively. So that's standardized patients who are trained to portray a patient role and working with the standardized patients in the Sim Center, they have already learned how to take a complete medical history and some of the physical exam skills. So, and they've already been tested on that. We videotaped them, reviewed the videotapes and provided them feedback based on that. Um, I, I will tell you that most medical students do not provide that, most medical schools, excuse me, do not provide that much feedback that quickly. You usually have to wait about half a year in. They have also used some of the uh, task trainers we have. So for example, we have a mannequin named Sam. It stands for Student Auscultation Mannequin, and it can create a variety of heart and lung sounds. And since they are currently in their cardiovascular course, that correlates to the basic science they're learning about how the heart functions. And then they can learn the physical exam of examining. So they've put that together. And then actually next week, we have a patient coming who's a standardized patient who they will practice all of those skills on now that they've practiced on a mannequin. So those are some examples. And I, I know you mentioned uh, before we started recording that even through this symposium, uh, you're learning a lot of different uh, applications and things that uh, will will even improve what it already exists. Yes, I mean it's such a an evolving field. Every day something new comes online, um, and so Vaz was talking to me earlier during the break about something he had heard this morning at the symposium that he thought would provide a really good opportunity for our students during their upcoming neuroscience course. So, yes, we certainly are hoping to plumb the expertise here at the symposium for new ideas for what we could incorporate. So, obviously, we're early into this process you know, what are you hearing from the outside? I know that the, there has to be a lot of people that are curious about how things are going. Uh, what are so, what's some of the early feedback that you're getting? So my favorite feedback is when we talk about what we're doing and a person who is already a physician stops and says, oh, I would go back to medical school if I could do that. Um, one of the other uh, pieces of feedback that I haven't heard personally but I have been told is that um, a very famous school on the East Coast in Boston, people from there have said that they really wish they could do engineering and medicine the way we're doing it, but that they just can't change with years of tradition. Mm -hmm. And that's the joy of starting something new. And in this environment where collaboration is the norm instead of the exception, it's really, it's really exciting. I mean, I dropped everything I was doing and came here giving my last institution two weeks' notice because I wanted to be part of it. Well, we could uh, expand upon this, and we certainly will. Uh, hopefully we'll have you back on a future podcast to really s see how things are going because, as we mentioned, you know, the people, the world is watching, if you will, and they're excited about things that are happening here. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. So Judy Rowan has been our guest, and uh, thank you for listening. 
Joining us now is John Bozanelic. Uh, among other things, he's the uh, co-director of the Jump Simulation and uh, Education Center at uh, OSF Healthcare, uh, vice president and chief medical officer uh, for simulation for them, and uh, also the uh, co-director of the uh, Jump Simulation Center here on campus. And that's what we want to talk about. Can talk about your the many hats that you that you have around uh, here, and then also in Peoria. Absolutely. So I've been working in the field of medical simulation for quite some time, and I think it um, is a measure of the collaboration between the University of Illinois and OSF to see uh, the support and creation of a co-directorship for the Carl Illinois College of Medicine Simulation Center here, also named the Jump Simulation Center here in Urbana. Now, here we bring uh, some of the experiences from the Jump Center in Peoria, the best practices, the utilization of equipment for the training of professionals and uh, undergraduate medical students uh, here uh, in focus. Uh, clearly here in focus we'll see a lot of use by medical students, but also by engineering students. And this is where the duality of my appointment, both in medicine and in engineering, allows for that juxtaposition. So we have a synergy that happens where engineers can likewise come into that medical context test their ideas, and receive immediate feedback in the simulation center. So this is, uh, there's a lot of things happening at once. One, the, the uh, Carl Illinois College of Medicine opening its doors, the, the Jump Simulation Center in Everett Hall opening its doors. There's a lot of, of uh, moving parts that are happening at the same time. Just talk about how things are going over there. Well, I have to tell you, it's a happy uh, collision of uh, culture and technology, and frankly, uh, we are going as fast as we can uh, to provide for the needs of the new students here. These students are brilliant, first of all. They're uh, from a variety of disciplines. They bring forth all kinds of questions that we might not hear from a traditional medical student, uh, and they want to discover and invent things. And so the Simulation Center here has that as its core theme. Now, Certainly, the fundamentals of medicine are required, so we have to have excellence in clinical skills and history-taking and all of the art of medicine, but then to incorporate this infusion of the quantitative an analytics and the engineering discipline to really rediscover or to create new devices inside this sp space, well, the Jump Simulation Center here in Everett provides those resources for those students. So, um, talk a little bit about the engineering-based College of Medicine and how those students are different. You mentioned, uh, you hinted a little bit than perhaps uh, other students at uh, other medical colleges and where that puts Illinois on the, on the, uh, the landscape. Certainly the, the novelty here in the Carl Illinois College of Medicine uh, is the student comes from a more of a quantitative background. And so that could be uh, fields of chemistry or engineering. But these disciplines that are steeped in science and math, uh, and so the students that we would see here are going to be those students that are going to be leaders, perhaps, in some of the innovative work to transform either medical devices or new processes in medicine and in healthcare generally. So already we've seen the students begin to engage the simulation center, some of which for rather rudimentary training, so simple life support training, things of that sort uh, that are... Um, very uh, rudimentary or uh, foundational to medical school, but we've already begun to see them discover uh, new ways to modify the training devices. So this has been very interesting to see. Mm -hmm. So they come into that center, they see some of these training devices, say, ah, I could make that better. 
Now, I've stood next to uh, Dean Lee and uh, had him uh, interview a student about how he would make a new device better, and uh, I'll tell you, the, the ideas are phenomenal. Uh, augmented and virtual reality will probably uh, take a great deal of uh, dominance in terms of the ability to scale up training. Students may find themselves actually in their homes engaging those technologies, which uh, allow them to explore instead of take home a textbook, they take home a virtual reality or augmented reality module, and they learn better, perhaps. We believe they'll learn in a more engaged fashion. So this, uh, there's a, there's a bi-directional flow here. The students are bringing us new ideas, and we're bringing students new ideas and technologies as well. So simulation hasn't been around for a, uh, a, um, a while, but uh, talk a little bit about OSF Peoria, how they got involved, and then the, then the uh, partnership with the University of Illinois, and how that's just really springboarded uh, simulation across the state. Absolutely. So we have our, our roots in, in the, uh, the wonderful philanthropy that has been brought forth. And the wonderful philanthropy has been brought forth from, from a variety of sources, but the, the dominant source uh, is a particular interest in bringing together medicine and the art of medicine and the powerhouse that the University of Illinois uh, represents. And so in this, we have OSF's contribution, the University of Illinois, and now expanded to the Carl Illinois College of Medicine. Uh, we have, for example, we're here today at the Healthcare uh, Systems Engineering uh, Symposium, which uh, highlights the Jump Arches program. So again, um, a huge endowment provided uh, in, its, uh, in its roots in, in uh, philanthropy but which lead to the new technologies. And these, some of these technologies that were funded a few years ago are now in use at the Carl Illinois College of Medicine to train medical students about anatomy or congenital heart disease or uh, even, in, even just simple physiology. Uh, and this is how combining that healthcare context with the deep resources of the University of Illinois provide fruit for students from all backgrounds, but clearly here as well at Carl Illinois College of Medicine. We mentioned uh, the benefit for the medical students. What are the other uses that you see the Simulation Center having as uh, you go forward? Well, when I was involved in the design of this center, and we held at its root the ability to maintain a flexibility because we knew that there were colleges of nursing here in our community, uh, not the least of which is the University of Illinois from Chicago College of Nursing here in, on the campus uh, in the Urbana. Uh, but also community colleges and community healthcare workers from a variety of backgrounds. So you'll find that the center is amenable to teach not just uh, each individual discipline, but individual disciplines in an interprofessional environment. We've recreated certain key contexts for clinical activity. So operating room, uh, emergency department, outpatient center, et cetera, within the Everett uh, space so that we can do a great job of training the variety of disciplines, but also providing that interprofessional education theme. It's a loaded question here. Um, doesn't have an easy answer. How is simulation changing? How, how do you see the future? Because um, you know, it, it right. does seem like it's exploding. So the traditional uh, simulation that has gone through the last two decades, let's say, have been focused around a variety of training devices not the least of which are these uh, so-called high-fidelity mannequins. So these are like robotic people, and they're very, very powerful. 
There's no doubt that they're very powerful because they evoke in the trainee a sense of uh, realism that is hard to ignore. Uh, the devices blink and breathe and they stop breathing and they go through cardiac arrest or septic shock and all of the inputs uh, reveal human behaviors in the clinical context. What I see for the future, however, uh, since that technology really has remained fairly stagnant for the last two decades, what I see now are the introduction of mixed reality. So we'll probably see a lot more augmented uh, reality overlays on task trainers or other devices. We'll see a lot more computational power at the training uh, bedside. And we're going to see from that a fruit uh, which is scalable solutions. Again, students and learners of a variety of disciplines able to partake in very impactful training in their home or in a non-traditional space. Well, thank you for joining us. We look forward to expanding on that probably in a, in a future podcast, but uh, you know, give us a little, giving us a little flavor of the Jump Simulation Center, which is opening and it has opened uh, this fall on campus. Thank you very much for the time. It's been a remarkable journey together. I'm going to wrap up our uh, podcast today by talking with Kesavetis. He's the uh, director of healthcare, the Healthcare Engineering Systems Center. Uh, and the co-director of Jump Simulation Center and obviously an organizer of this event today. Uh, this is the fifth year that uh, you've done this. Talk about how the, pro the uh, program has evolved. Uh, thank you, Mike. Uh, so we are very excited that, to see that this program has grown over the last five years. Uh, the first year which, when we did this, uh, it was mostly uh, faculty members who were showcasing what technologies could be there uh, in the area of health and simulation, uh, but it was just in the beginning. Uh, now that we are in the fourth year, uh, we have uh, almost 24 different projects that has been funded through through our center and through this uh, endowment called the Jump Arches Endowment. Um, and uh, every one of the projects that we have funded is actually a groundbreaking project. So we have projects in uh, developing robots for rehabilitation training, uh, robots for uh, doing uh, minimally invasive surgery, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality systems, doing very advanced uh, uh, skill training like in intubation and things like that. Uh, we are also looking at virtual avatars, a low-cost virtual reality system using Oculus Go for public health and so on and so forth. So it's really we've come a long way in the last four years from a concept you know, an idea that we can bring engineers and clinicians to work together and to see now outputs leading to patents, publications, even startup companies. I think that this uh, program is really making an impact. How is this sort of um, uh, intimating that Illinois is becoming a center of robotics <clears throat> and as it relates to healthcare and then also with the simulation center? Uh, you know, simulations and, and medicine, it seems like Illinois is becoming a center and, and, and this is just the beginning. Definitely. So uh, there are uh, several things that is happening in central Illinois, which is actually all coming together today. Uh, and, you know, we are like in the middle of the country in the Midwest and we are really, um, uh, you know, showing how we can do medical education differently. Number one, we have a new college of medicine here which uh, I'm sure many of uh, people have heard, it's called Engineering-Based College of Medicine. So we have engineering running through the entire College of Medicine curriculum. Now, the number two is the Jump Arches Endowment, which is a very unique endowment 
across U.S. where a College of Engineering has been given an endowment of 62 million, which is the largest endowment in College of in the, in the University of Illinois, to focus nothing on seeing how engineering can help outcomes using um, simulation and technologies like that. Number three is our own simulation center on campus that was set up this year. It's a $10 million center, which also came through a gift from the GEM trading company. This is a full-fledged simulation center. It's got an operating room. It's got an ICU. It's got examination room, skill room, virtual reality rooms, standardized patient room. It's a facility where you can come and train medical students, allied health uh, professionals. Uh, at the same time, this facility can uh, videotape everything that is happening inside, can be used for debriefing and learning, So, which means that uh, um, faculty members on campus or even companies can come and try out their products inside a simulation center. They can test how the simulations, how in a simulated environment does these devices fit into healthcare system. So this uh, confluence of all these organizations and uh, projects working together is really creating the kind of um, uh, excitement here in central Illinois, which is, in my opinion, very, very unique. Engineering, medicine working together to help uh, simulation and healthcare. So you came to campus uh, to run the Healthcare uh, Engineering Systems Center. Talk about the concept at the beginning and the, how it's evolved and, and uh, the breadth of projects that continue to be uh, going on there. Um, at the time when we started the endowment, uh, Jump Arches, uh, when I came and took over uh, this, uh, initiated the project from the beginning, um, the idea was to put uh, clinicians and uh, engineers together. That was the main concept we had. We really did not know which way it is going to go because we were really looking at what faculty members are doing here. The most um, interesting observation I have had is that when we made this funding opportunity available, many faculty members in engineering uh, in fact started looking at their own research in a different way and trying to st- start seeing how their research could help healthcare. So some very theoretical work uh, was now being converted into technologies that can be used in simulation. To give you an example, um, one of our faculty members is working, Brad Sutton, who is an expert in imaging. He's the director of the Imaging Center at Beckman's. He has uh, you know, very deep understanding of imaging. But he applied his knowledge in that for doing automatic segmentation, which can create 3D models that can now be used in virtual reality environment in a very quick fashion. So you can see how the traditional imaging research was now being converted into creating virtual patients. This is happening everywhere on campus. Uh, The moment uh, uh, faculty members sit with a clinician and they start talking, they start seeing a new way that technology can now be evolved into education. And that's what we have seen in four years is that it's grown and become much more um, uh, synergistic in some sense that we could not even imagine four years back. And I think that this will only grow in the coming years. 
Well, it's certainly virtual and augmented reality, a major part of that, and uh, will continue to grow going forward, I would think. You know, virtual reality and augmented reality has been around for 25, 30 years, I would say, right? Um, it's nothing new for our campus. We had one of the first caves, in fact. Some of the early inventors of caves are from our campus here. But what has changed is that in five years, we have now devices which is affordable by masses. And in fact, we had a big role to play in that as well, as one of my colleagues here, uh, Steve Laval, was one of the early engineers with the Oculus when that, uh, that became a real product. So Oculus created a new generation of head-mounted displays, now followed by HTC Vive, and Oculus itself has a low-cost device. What that has done is it has taken the concept of virtual reality, which has been around for 25, 30 years, and made it uh, to the ground level where anybody can use it. At our own center here, we have a very big group working in virtual reality and augmented reality. But what we've shown is that Virtual reality can not only be used by doctors, by medical students, but our recent work in food safety uses a $200 Oculus Go to create uh, training scenarios for uh, food safety for people who do temporary vendors, restaurants, and things like that. It's, we are really pushing it to the boundary to show that virtual reality is not anymore an exotic gaming environment thing, but it is something that can actually impact masses. So a big part of today is uh, just sort of the presentation of uh, projects through jump arches and through simulations. So talk about the simulation center and the the, uh, the detail that went into um, the, you know what it looks like now and uh, what it could look like in the future. I mean, it, it's it's a really impressive place. Yes. So we. Um, conceived this uh, simulation center to be a, a, a small facility, but very advanced high-tech uh, facility. So this was not designed for a very large community, but it was, con it was designed for a small community. So our simulation center and all the allied facilities, including the healthcare engineering system center, which is doing the engineering, all put together is really located in a 12,000 square foot facility. So it's not really big compared to our sister jump simulation center in Peoria, which is, in fact, uh, bigger than 50,000 square foot of simulation. But what we did here was we, we uh, introduced all the latest technologies that can go into simulation. So we have a room completely dedicated to bringing any kind of virtual reality, augmented reality curriculum inside. We have an operating room where we can videotape, we can monitor, we can collect using sensors, uh, the movement of people inside, and so on and so forth. We have a control room through from where we can monitor things going on so that that can be used for human factor studies, can be uh, used for, uh, for uh, team activities, and so on and so forth. We can also videotape in 360 degrees all the actions going on in the simulation center. That can now be converted into a software that we have made where we can create a mixed reality curriculum. Uh, we also have mannequins, uh, everything that you can think of, uh, from advanced sim man to babies and uh, birthing simulators to skill simulators. So anything that someone can think of and what is available off the shelf, we have it. But we also have technology developed through Arches Inside, which is not available for anybody outside the campus. 
which is unique to our campus, which is now in the process of being translated. But at this sim center, you can come and see that and use it. So we are really uh, a year ahead of everybody else in the sense that rest of the country will only see these technologies one or two years from now, but they can experience it in the sim center if they come today or they want to use those technologies today. So when you say they can come there, who, who are you talking uh, about and, and who are you hoping to attract uh, to use the sim center? So the sim center, the primary uh, audience of the sim center is going to be our medical college students and our bioengineering students. But uh, our sim center uh, can also be utilized by any allied health professionals, like community colleges, uh, residency programs, and so on and so forth. Uh, they have to approach us. Uh, there is a formal process that we are developing. We are still early, uh, but there is a process. They can submit a request, and then we can develop curriculum from them, and they can utilize the facilities. Our staff or technical staff can help in curriculum. And, uh, and there may be a, a small fee to pay to cover the cost and things like that when we are developing those policies. But in addition to that, we, we are also looking at attracting um, companies, healthcare companies who would like to come and try out their wearable sensors perhaps or their software so they can come and use a facility to showcase and test the prototypes before they transition into real hospitals. We can provide those kind of services as well. Anybody who have an innovative idea in medical device and need to simulate and test it, um, we can ma make our facilities available. So it's going to be a great facility for our campus faculty members, but we are also hoping outside organizations uh, may need this and they can approach us. Well, we look forward to uh, seeing it grow. Kesh, thank you for joining us, batting cleanup on this uh, podcast and for helping host the symposium today. Uh, thank you, Mike, for uh, doing this podcast, and I'm looking forward to a, a great output from this work. Well, we appreciate you uh, listening in uh, today. Uh, various uh, presenters from the uh, Fifth Healthcare Engineering System Symposium uh, with a uh, uh, very emphasis on interactive medical simulation. So we appreciate you joining us today. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Illinois Innovators is a production of Engineering at Illinois. All rights reserved. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or SoundCloud by searching Engineering at Illinois. We hope you'll help grow our core of listeners by leaving a favorable rating on iTunes.